For those of us in Iowa, spring is a time of hope, especially after a long winter. And, and I don't know about you, I was really looking forward to April being the turnaround place for our COVID-19 situation. And when the announcements this past week and the uh, statistics and all these other things didn't turn out the way I thought it was, going to, I, I actually experienced some times of discouragement and times of anxiety wondering when this thing would get over. And I thought, as I looked at that situation, it reminded me of the time when, when Peter was on the water and he got caught up with the waves. And Pastor Matt uh, reminded us that when we look at our circumstances and we don't look at Jesus, we're bound to fail. And as I consider what has taken place this last week, and as we move into what it, we term the Passion Week, that week preceding the Easter celebration, I wanted to take some time looking over some of the portions in the New Testament and the Gospels that give the account of the last week that Jesus was here before his resurrection. But I also want to look at it from a perspective that involved the challenges, the discouragement, or even the emotional week of a man by the name of Peter. Peter's known well. He's infamous in regard to the last week with Jesus, particularly when he was in the courtyard. So I would like us to look at that, but also to send you a reminder to take this time this week and visit our website and be able to look at the various devotionals as we walk our way through the, the Passion Week from a perspective of focus on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that you have provided for us. In those times when we become discouraged, those times when we allow anxiety to build up in our lives, Father, may we remember to turn to you. And as we take a look, a very rapid look, at the last week, that Passion Week, and look at it from a perspective of how it impacts Peter. I pray, Lord, that we will glean some things that will be of assistance to us as we too go through maybe not just weeks, maybe multiple weeks of, of times where we are overwhelmed, where we are disappointed, and where we are actually experiencing sometimes of anxiety. And I pray that your word will be an encouragement to us and that we would indeed be willing to follow you in these times that we need you so much. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at Christ in our Christ, this crisis and dealing with disappointments, devastation, and anxiety, identifying with the Passion Week. It's interesting, as I consider this week, I have divided it out into seven different events or situations that uh, have an impact, I believe, in what was going on in the emotions of Peter during this emotional week. And the first one is the one that we would be uh, celebrating uh, today, that we're celebrating today, usually with a lot of palm branches, recognizing uh, Jesus as our king, and uh, focusing on that great celebration. I'd like us to look at John's account of that situation of what we call the triumphal entry, and I will call that the presentation of the king. 
as being one of those things that impacted our friend Peter emotionally. If you look at it from John chapter 12, you see these things. Uh, you have the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. These are the types of things that they were calling out. What's interesting, this is coming right on the heels of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So some of the people that were excited about throwing down the palm branches were ones that were excited about what Jesus had done in the life of Lazarus. So we had quite a following. And it says this, that even all of this that went on, John depicts it this way, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they were able to take it all in. And then the final thing that I noticed from there is what the response of the Pharisees were. As the religious leaders looked at what was happening with the triumphal entry, when Jesus was coming in on that uh, lowly animal, but yet people were singing or shouting Hosanna and uh, giving great praise to him, calling him the king, the, the Pharisees said, look, the world has gone after him. As I consider how that impacts a person emotionally, I would look at it from these three elements. First of all, an anticipation of maybe three years of, of following Jesus, maybe being back in the shadows, maybe being uh, hampered in by all the multitudes and going through all these various things wherein the people, when they're all together, were always clamoring, wanting something. And this is a sign that maybe now they're throwing things down. They're, they're singing the praises, if you would, of, of Jesus. And it could be if I were a disciple, I'd be thinking, now is the time. Things are turning around. The emotional high would come after three years of waiting for the king to come. All of the parables, all the teaching on the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, maybe this is the time when all things are going to come together. The second thing that I think of is the anxiety of the potential role that might be there. You know, some things were said about Peter by Jesus that would have probably been sticking in his mind from the very first introduction to Peter when uh, Jesus changed his name to Peter from Simon to the, uh, the claim that Christ would build his church after uh, the great confession that Peter made about Jesus being the Christ. Or maybe it was his walking on the water and being able to do some of these special things or being a part of the, the three that typically were with Jesus. Whatever it might have been, it's very possible that Peter might have been analyzing or having even some anxiety about the potential role that he might play. It's finally here. What kind of role am I going to play? And you know that the disciples bickered and they tried to figure out amongst themselves who's going to be the greatest among them. And you wonder, what type of emotions is Peter going through at this time during the triumphal entry? And then the writing, the emotions of the high of popularity. They weren't that popular prior to this time. Now the people were up and excited and things could be turning around. And this moves fairly quickly into the next event as as Jesus goes into the temple and he chases out the money changers, turns over tables and shows a lot of emotion and anger as he wants to make things right in regard to 
uh, the, his father's house. And in this, you can imagine you know, Peter looking on and observing what is happening here. And some of the uh, elements that I would notice there is the uh, actual asserting of authority that Jesus is not only riding on the, uh, the, the colt and being called Hosanna, the king, he is now exercising this in the time of cleansing the temple and uh, establishing possibly, of course, of where things should be going. And I wonder if Peter just didn't wonder about the righteous element of what they're doing. The system had been so corrupt and it was so obvious and now deliverance was there and Peter could be part of it. Peter could be one who would uh, be able to be a part of what is going on. In Matthew 21, 15, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. This is Matthew's account of what happened in the temple. That even as Jesus went and he put forth his rage and righteousness, he also healed uh, some of the people that were there and they cried out, Hosanna. And that made the the Pharisees even more indignant. So you can see things kind of raising as far as the level of intensity and the intensity of confrontations. And as you look at the third event that I have noticed in this account uh, is that there is uh, an increase in the intense confrontations. Over time, Jesus has regularly called out the religious leaders. But it seems that even in this time between the triumphal entry and the rest of this week, more parables are being shared in regard to uh, what uh, the kingdom of heaven would be like and those individuals that were against it and the ones that had done poorly in stewarding their responsibilities as leaders. So you, you see a ratcheting up through the parables. You also uh, see the, the uh, Pharisees and religious leaders questioning the authority that Jesus has and Jesus using the John the Baptist and asking them whose authority did he do what he did. And if you can answer that, I will answer you as well. And so Jesus is having more of these confrontations. It goes to the place where he does the seven woes against them. And with great emotion talks about the fact that they have been a great disappointment. And uh, also, you wonder about the uh, threat of violence increasing towards Jesus as the religious leaders recognize that something needs to happen. The high priest had already said shortly after Lazarus had been raised from the dead that one man needs to die for the sake of their nation. I don't believe he understood the prophecy that he was saying there, for he was just thinking they needed to remove Jesus so that they wouldn't have the conflict with the Romans. But essentially, he was letting the whole world know that there would be one man that would be the salvation, not only of their nation, but of the whole world. But this type of, of, of anxiety by the religious leaders was ramping up during this time. And it goes on to, to, to make me think what is going through uh, what Peter might be considering uh, when he sees what Jesus is doing. 
Is it a possibility that some of his courage is being emboldened, that he's considering how that he might be able to be a part of this confrontation as well, as the uh, religious leaders are being put in their place through various ways in which Jesus has been sharing with them? And then Jesus goes on to give what I call a pep talk on persecution. Now, I believe that the disciples had a tendency to have selective hearing or selective memory when Jesus talked about the kingdom. It was was very possible that what they recalled and what they remembered and how they envisioned it was all the great authority that they would have, all the great things that they can do, how wonderful it it is to be able to be with Jesus, who is the king. But Jesus takes this time to be able to share with them what it's really going to be like going forward in the future. And he shares a lot of things about persecution. He says, you will be delivered even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And, and some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all my na- for my name's sake. That comes out of Luke as his account in regard to what was coming up for the disciples. And it was in Mark chapter 13 where we find that it was Peter and James and John and Andrew that were actually asking, what is it going to be like? What's going to happen in the future? So these pep talks on persecution, things are going to get bad. There's going to be wars and antichrist, hatred. Uh, They definitely, I think, are still struggling with that selective hearing. And then the question would be in the mind, as we look at these various emotions, who will step up during this time? I think it's a fitting to imagine what types of the emotions that Peter went through and how that they affect some of the things that we are going through. As he considers the high of the, the, the time when the triumphal entry took place and things going well. I can imagine for many of us, we had great expectations for this spring. That maybe we've gone through a hard winter going through some difficult times, and we knew that March was coming. We knew that April was coming. There may have been some great things on your calendar that you had to eliminate because of the COVID-19 crisis. And as a result, there might have been this this high emotional uh, experience, and now things are starting to come into play where it's not going to happen the way we thought it would happen. And as a result, discouragement and anxiety might be coming into play. I wonder if Peter was starting to get a little more heavy in some of his thoughts, going from that time of the triumphal entry and everyone's crying out Hosanna to getting to the place where he's recognizing things are going to get difficult. But who will step up during this time? And I see Peter as being one, recognizing that regardless of what anyone else does, He is going to be one that steps up. And you see this developing a little bit during the Passover time. The Passover time started out really with what I would call an awkward display of humiliation. You see Peter and and John were sent to uh, to go out and find the place where they would partake of the Passover. And once they got to the Passover, Jesus... uh, 
had recognized that their feet need to be washed. And John chapter 13 gives us the account of where Jesus came up and he took the basin, he took the towel and he grabbed their feet and started washing their feet as a servant. And when he came to Peter, Peter says, no, he rebuked the Lord and said, I would not allow you to wash my feet. Of course, Jesus explained to him, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be a part of me. And of course, in that case, Peter said, well, wash all of me, because Peter wanted to be all in. I don't know what was motivating Peter during that time when he didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. I often thought it was just a display of awkwardness and and maybe because of uh, he felt a responsibility to be a leader or maybe he just wanted to display his humility. But I, I thought about the fact that in Mark's, uh, excuse me, Luke's account, he shares that uh, Peter and John were told to go and prepare a Passover for us that we may eat it. And as I think about Peter and John kind of being the ones responsible for preparing things, I wonder if they should have been responsible too for making sure there was a servant to wash the feet. Now, that's pure speculation on my part, but I am just wondering, because I've had those situations in my life, too, where I have wondered about how that uh, my responsibility was not fulfilled the way it should have been. And that brings to me great concern and sometimes anxiety. And if that's true for Peter in this situation, I can imagine the whole foot washing thing being a little more intense if it if he felt that it was his responsibility either to arrange the foot washing or maybe even to do it himself. So it goes from that awkward display to Jesus sharing that one of the disciples is going to betray him. Now, it's difficult to have enemies that are without. Uh, For example, the religious leaders, the Romans, uh, people that they didn't know what to consider, who they were, and, and what they thought of them as the disciples and followers of Jesus. Here in the most intimate time of Jesus sharing about what uh, the bread represented and what the juice represented and about the, the importance of, of taking and partaking of this, he says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, the shock of realizing that someone within their midst, someone they had spent three years with, could be one that was going to betray Jesus. And as I've thought about this, I've I've wondered not only about my concern as to who might be the one to impact Jesus, to turn him in, to betray him. I would, if I were in that situation, start thinking about myself. Who is it here that I really can't trust? Who is it that... um, now I've made myself vulnerable to for three years and they know a lot of things about me that I wasn't sure I would be willing to share with anyone. But this type of following Jesus has opened the door to to be that close with someone and to think they might be a spy or someone who has a, a bad plan for our lives. And I would think of all the different emotions that would come along with that as we consider that... Uh, There's an enemy within. We, of course, know that's Judas, but uh, Peter didn't know who it was and says uh, in verse uh, 23 through 25 of John 13, uh, 
It says one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, we believe that's John, that's why he referred to himself, was reclining at the table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, I don't know why Peter was so anxious to find out who it was. They all ask, is it I, is it I, is it I? Uh, they certainly were concerned whether or not it was themselves. But it seemed that Peter had an agenda of some sort as to why he wanted to know. And he knew John had a, was closest in proximity and maybe even in relationship to be able to get the answer to the question. What would Peter do with that information? Was he interested in trying to squelch it, to interfere, interfere with the betrayal? We don't know what was on Peter's mind, but I can't but imagine the type of stress that has an emotion to realize that someone that's your close friend is potentially your enemy. As we think of the COVID-19 crisis, and as we go out and try to just get out and get the main things that we need, it's so hard not to imagine who might have the disease or who might be able to carry it and infect us. And as a result, we could, rather than seeing people as individuals that we love, we could see them as people that we would be fearful of. And now the disciples were in that type of situation. With this announcement, they had to wonder who was with them and who was against them. Shortly thereafter, we know that there's a, an emphasis on a heightened commitment to loyalty. Peter has always claimed that he would stand by Jesus no matter what. But Jesus decides to tell him this in Luke. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Out of Luke 22, 31 through 34. So as we're finishing up this Passover and shortly thereafter, you have Peter wanting to emphasize how much he's going to stand beside Jesus no matter what. And then Jesus giving that prophecy of his denial, that he would deny Christ three times. From the Passover, they moved to what would be considered, I think, the safe house. The disciples had gone through many turmoils with Jesus, whether it be on the sea when the waves were pushing against them and, and causing them a great amount of anxiety and Jesus rested in the boat, or it may have been when the crowds were so uh, great and were pressing upon them and they were anxious on how to escape without uh, some injury, or when the uh, crowds were hungry and they may have worried whether or not the, uh, they would uh, have to uh, care for the safety of their body with the disappointment of hungry people. But in this case, they were in the garden, the nice, calm garden. And if you can imagine just the, uh, the quietness of it and maybe the breaking it up into the, uh, the sky and being able to see the stars and then the, the quiet sounds that took place, it was a great place to come away and pray. 
uh, we also find out that it was a great place that uh, uh, that they were going to um, uh, potentially fall asleep. But we know that this was a very emotional time for Jesus. And this has been something that the disciples probably have never seen before. Certainly they saw emotion when Jesus uh, uh, was at the tomb of Lazarus and, it, and he groaned and he was concerned about uh, what was going on in that situation. But in this case, Jesus was physically impacted by what was going on in his heart. Uh, so in contrast, when the sea was, was tossing and turning, Jesus was calm. In the calm of the garden, Jesus is in turmoil. And we see uh, this situation here as we find in Matthew 26. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And uh, he went a little further. He fell on his face and prayed. And when he came back to the disciples, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What kind of temptation would they be entering into? And why is he addressing specifically Peter in this situation? I think it's because Jesus has already told Peter that Satan has requested to sift him like wheat. That the time that uh, was going to really take place of the turmoil was then. And that even when things seemed calm around, that was the dangerous time. You see, Peter wasn't being sober. He wasn't being vigilant. He instead was caught up in the serenity of the situation and fell to sleep. Quite honestly, I can't understand how he was able to fall asleep. I've had a lot less uh, drastic news uh, keep me awake at night than knowing that uh, uh, one of my friends was going to betray my master. Uh, but for some reason, he was able to fall asleep. I think it's because he looked at the circumstances around him. And it wasn't the waves and the wind. And it wasn't all the other things that had caused him so much uh, uh, concern in the past. But it was at that time he was most susceptible. And he needed to be alert. And he needed to be praying. And so in the garden, it was an emotional time for Jesus. And Jesus was disappointed in Peter yet once again. And then you have the situation where uh, the uh, the... The accounts talk about one of the disciples that took out a sword and cut off the ear of the servant. Because after the prayer, Judas came up and he was and he came across where Jesus was and he gave him the kiss to betray him. And as a result, Is something wrong? Ah, stink. Okay. Judas had come up to betray Jesus with a kiss. And the different 
accounts talk about a disciple that was there that took out a sword and cut off an ear, uh, but it, yet it was the uh, the uh, the uh, the apostle John who was willing to uh, to share that it was Peter. He says, and Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off the right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. We see that in John 18, verse 10. And then we see in Matthew chapter 26 what it says that Jesus' response to Peter and to, to them as they were concerned about how Jesus was going to be protected. He says this, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Here Peter was trying to stand up for his Savior, to prove that he would not deny him, to prove that even if others should run away, he would be there. And he considered himself to be the one to, to, to stand up against this crowd that had come to take his master. And Jesus, instead of rejoicing in this great display of valor, corrected him and rebuked him and reminded him that he had the power of his heavenly father to do whatever he wanted and that Jesus did not need Peter to be his bodyguard. And as I imagine the emotion that came along with that, as I would consider those times where I think I'm going to help God out and that I want to do something and be uh, available for his plan only to find out that he doesn't need me in that situation and he chooses to go another direction and what disappointment that comes in our lives when we, when we recognize those type of things and wonder how is God going to use me. You can see now a trend where Peter is going from the triumphal entry and now everything has continued to spiral down through events that continued to build to where we finally look at the time in the courtyard. He followed Jesus and as Jesus went through his trial, Peter went through his trial as well. He had a series of unexpected confrontations. I don't know how often Peter had people come up to him and say, hey, are you with Jesus? I think maybe it was obvious or, or whatever, but uh, here I'm sure he wasn't anticipating that people would come up to him and confront him in such a way. And as they did, he denied that he knew him. Great emotion came out when he denied them. Uh, he invoked curses upon himself, and he was adamant about the fact that he didn't even know who Jesus was, let alone was a part of, of what Jesus was doing. And once he did all this, three times, the rooster crowed. And it says that when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered, and he went out weeping bitterly. You know, I wonder what the crowing of the rooster's purpose was. And I just don't wonder if it wasn't to show grace. I wonder how many times that Peter would have disappointed in his Lord. How many times would he reject him? How many times would he disappoint him in this? How many times would he say he didn't know him? Would it go up to four? 
five, six, or even that magic number that's seven that Peter brought up in Matthew 18 as to how often someone should sin against me that I might forgive him. And I just wonder if the crowing of the rooster was designed to show grace to Peter, a way of escape, to recognize his sin had continued to go on and build and build and build. He didn't deny Jesus just one time. He did it three times. And when the rooster crowed, he wept bitterly. Peter went on from that week. Uh, You can see uh, much of his life in the book of Acts and how that he was able to be a part of the early church. Matter of fact, the first several chapters, he's kind of the star of the, uh, the show, if you would. But as he fades in the latter chapters of the book of Acts, as far as his importance and involvement, we know that God used him to write two books in the New Testament called First and Second Peter that bear his name. And it's in the first Peter that, uh, that he writes about trials and difficulties. And I wonder how much of what he talks about in the epistle of First Peter has anything to do with that one fateful week, that passion week that was so difficult for him. But he says just a few things that I think will be helpful for us as we close our thoughts and as we put together how does this passion week, this terrible emotional week that Peter experienced, how does that relate to us? The first thing that Peter says in his exhortation to us is he says, expect trials. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter wanted to make sure those who are reading his epistle understood that this is not something to be surprised at. If you have decided to follow Jesus because you thought it was the easier route, you thought it would remove some of your your pain or your difficulties, your challenges, uh, you need to read Peter and understand that fiery trials and difficulties are a part of our walk with Jesus Christ. And that we need to expect them, and in some cases, expect them when we don't expect them. Peter did not expect it in the garden. He didn't expect at that time that all things would start unraveling. Up to that point, he was just a part of the scene, and he had little episodes of involvement. But by the time the experience in the garden was over, it was pretty clear that he was now center stage and his testing would take place in the courtyard. He goes on to say this in in 1 Peter chapter 5, a wonderful portion of scripture where we have individual texts that we tend to use for various reasons, but Peter has them all together and I want to share them with us all together because he talks about the importance of embracing humility. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Again, as we look at the difficulties and the trials and the crises that we might be going through, it'd be very easy to think we can overcome it. We can do it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's about what I can do during these things. And Peter is reminding us is when we get ourselves in that place, uh, we become much more susceptible. That we need to humble ourselves and wait for the, uh, the work of God 
to exalt us. Now, what does that look like? It may not be what we think it is. It may not be that things will be the way we want it to be once we get through this COVID crisis. But there is a truth that as we humble ourselves before God, he will take care of lifting us to where he desires for us to be. (coughs) And the third item, he says in verse 6, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is reminding us in that act of humility, when we're recognizing and not surprised by the fact that there's trials, and that we are humbling ourselves, that one of the acts of that humility is recognizing that we can cast our care upon the Lord. I feel too often that we are willing to pray to God and share with God about the different difficulties we're going through, but that we're really not laying that burden upon him and letting him take it. Too often we are desirous to give it to him and take it back, give it to him and take it back. And we're more guilty of just simply worrying to God or sharing with God our problems and not believing that he truly wants to pick those up and take those from us. Peter would recognize in that horrible emotional week that at that time when he should have been turning to the heavenly father and praying lest he fall into temptation or even after he found himself in the courtyard did he think of casting that cares those anxiety the fear whatever it was that he was protecting himself from by denying who Jesus was those were things he all all of which he could have cast upon the lord And then finally, Peter says this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I think Peter could have talked about the sifting of wheat right here. But he chooses to talk about a lion. As Satan comes around like a lion seeking to devour us, he encourages us to be watchful, to be sober-minded to not get comfortable in particular situations. It seems to me that the times when I'm most vulnerable is when I find myself relaxing and looking after my own comforts. And those creature comforts cause me to to want to, in a sense, depend on myself, depend on those things around me. And those are times where Satan is able to work with my flesh and work with my desires and my emotions to, in a sense, devour me. He goes on to say this in verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. During our time of isolation, it's very easy for us to be focused on ourselves. It's very easy for us to think about what is happening in our county or happening in our state or even happening in our country, and not realizing that there are people that are experiencing the same type of thing all around the world. And Peter is reminding us that this type of thing is is not unusual to have trials, and that we have people that we love that are going through trials all around the world. There are missionaries, global partners that uh, we support in prayer and and through finances that are going through evacuations and difficulties, and, and they are experiencing this. And it would do us well to think about them rather than thinking only on ourselves. And also, we would recognize that as a lion is prone to 
separate one of the uh, uh, prey from the herd or the flock, uh, so is the way in which we are best devoured, is when we find ourselves feeling that we're all alone and we're not seeking the strength with other believers. 1 Kings chapter 19 talks about Elijah. In his depression and discouragement, he wants to die. And when God asks him, why are you here? He says, and I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. 1 Kings 19.14. And God, in his sovereignty and his love, lets, I, lets Elijah know that he has plans to utilize other individuals. He has plans to accomplish things outside of Elijah and that he has 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. All this time, Elijah was thinking he's all alone. There are times when we think that too, that what we're going through is unique to us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation overtaken you that is not common to man. That as we look for a way of escape and as we look at a way to be able to endure up underneath what is going on in the temptation in our life, we must recognize that it is not unique to us. We're not going through these things alone. Not only as we discovered last week, is God with us no matter what we go through in those dark times? God many times places others into our life to help us work through our times of temptation. Don't allow the lion to chase you out of the herd and make you susceptible for the devouring. So a quick recap, as you think about what your difficult emotional week or weeks might be, is expect trials, that it's something that is a part of life and that God has designed for them. Second of all, embrace humility. Be willing to depend upon God by casting your care upon him. And finally, heed the warnings. Don't be proud. Don't think you can do this on your own. Be willing to be watching and being sober and anticipating that God has a plan to help you through this time of trial. Father, as we close our time together, we do so with an anticipation that uh, uh, we are experiencing some difficulties, some hardships, uh, some trials, some anxieties. And you instruct us to cast those anxieties upon you. You have not created us to hold on to these anxieties. Instead, you want us to be able to cast them upon you. Father, I ask that you would uh, continue to give us your grace and help us to consider how that we can focus on the lives of others and to be a strength to others when we're tempted to be proud and to hold on to those things that keep us from being strong against the temptations that are out there. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.